So today is Pentecost Sunday, and uh, we've been going through Exodus. We took a long break from Exodus, and we've come back. And I thought, as I knew I was going to do Exodus 24 today, and then I realized it was Pentecost Sunday, and I thought, well, you know, I may just do a message on Pentecost, but as I began to really meditate on Exodus 24, it really works perfectly. Um, Let's read together. It's 18 verses. It's not super long. Exodus chapter 24 beginning in verse 1. Let me get there. Now he said to Moses, Come up here to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
That is the word of the Lord. That is an amazing account of what God has done. Now, as I mentioned, today is the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, what we commonly call it, Pentecost means 50. This feast was first introduced to us actually last week. Caleb read it in Exodus 23. It was called the Feast of Harvest. So in the Old Testament scriptures, in Exodus and Leviticus, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, this feast that we call Pentecost was commonly referred to as the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks. The Jews call it Shavat. It was the feast that occurred during the time of the year when the first harvest was brought in. Actually, it was the first of the wheat harvest. The first harvest, the first sheave that was waved before the Lord was on the Feast of First Fruits, and that is celebrated the Sunday after Passover. In fact, Jesus was resurrected on that feast day that we call First Fruits. It was a single day feast. It was part of the Passover. When we get to this scripture here and we have Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, this is one of three feasts throughout the year that God commands all Israel to appear before him. So today, being the Feast of Pentecost, what we are to understand, what we are to realize is that Pentecost marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the New Testament church. Not the birth of the church, but the birth of the New Testament church because the church has always existed. It just was exclusively Jewish under the Old Testament, in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So Pentecost, as we know it today, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, that feast that had been celebrated, that was commanded to be kept since God gave the statute, the commandment to Israel, recorded for us in Exodus 23. Fast forward 1,500 years to Jesus, and 50 days after his resurrection, God pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost marks the reality that God has come down to us that God eternally and fully dwells in and among his people. God is not waiting for us to come to him. God has come to us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Pentecost did not begin 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, was instituted by God right there at Mount Sinai. And this is where Israel is. When I just read to you Exodus 24, they are standing there at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is with the 70 elders, with Aaron, with Nadab, and Abihu, and they have gone up to the mountain because God called them up to where he was. And then Moses goes on and he goes up with his assistant Joshua. So this is the, the setting that we see here. The children of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai. God gives them his law. This is recorded for us in Exodus 19. And if you go, and we don't have time to go there, but when you look at Exodus 19, it says, in the third month after they had come out of Egypt to the day, 
And if you do the math calculations, understanding that Israel lives by a lunar calendar and they have 30 days in each month, when you do the calculations, understanding that the Passover was on the 15th day of the month, that third month to the very day out of Sinai brings them to the base of Sinai right at this time. Now, there was technically no feast of weeks or no feast of the harvest yet in Exodus 19. That will be introduced in Exodus 23, but this is where they are, and this is when they are there. And this is why the Jews, their understanding of Pentecost, their celebration of what we call Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest or Shavuot, their understanding is that this feast commemorates the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Word of God at Mount Sinai to the children of Israel. For the church, we celebrate Pentecost as the day that God poured out his spirit on all flesh. The Jews are celebrating Pentecost today as the day that God gave his word to his people. Do you see the similarity? Do you see that there is not a difference here? Because the giving of the word, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai was just a type and a shadow of how God would give his living word and not just give us a written word, but would pour his living word into our hearts and write his word on our heart by his Holy Spirit. That was fulfilled at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. That is the significance of Pentecost. And that feast given to us in Exodus 23 was ultimately and completely fulfilled when the living word came to us and filled us. So Moses and Israel at Sinai picture Christ and his church at Pentecost. So let's go through this, not verse by verse, but I'm going to go through it in, in, uh, in some chunks. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8, we see Israel affirm the covenant with God. Now, when we go to this, I do want to point this out to you. You notice that when Moses sets up the altar, and so there already was the regulation of how the altar was to be built. It was to be built out of earth. It wasn't to be made out of stones that were, were worked with a tool. And so according to the plan that God had already given to Moses, Moses builds this altar. He erects these 12 pillars that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says that he then commanded young men of the children of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Those young men went back and they wrangled up those oxen and they brought them and the, the work of sacrificing those oxen were done on that altar. There were burnt offerings and there were peace offerings. Jesus was crucified for us and offered up to God as a burnt offering. That means he was totally and completely consumed and given up to God. Peace offerings are offerings that are offered, but they're to be shared. 
So this is a picture of, and this is what God commanded when Israel came together for the Feast of, Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Harvest. All Israel was there, and they would offer their peace offerings to the Lord, and they would take that sacrifice, and, and the priests would get some, and the people would get some, and they would have literally a feast. It wasn't just a spiritual ceremony, it was a literal feast. And they kept those feasts in that way. And so they offered up these burnt offerings and their, these peace offerings, and all the blood from the offering was put in basins. And it was put in these basins, and half of it was used to sprinkle on the altar, and the other half was used to sprinkle on the people. He took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. So it says Moses took half the blood, verse 6, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So the half of the blood in those basins was sprinkled on the altar, but the other half in those basins Moses sprinkled on the people. That's a lot of blood, but there were a lot of people. And Moses sprinkled that blood on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Does that sound familiar to you? When Jesus sits at the Last Supper with his disciples and he raises the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which he established for us, which he secured for us by the shedding, by the sprinkling of his blood. Whether the people that stood at the foot of Jesus' cross knew it or not, all of those spectators, all those mockers that stood at the feet of Jesus' cross, Jesus, the cross of Jesus, when that Roman soldier, when he thrust that spear into the side of Jesus, and the Bible says, outflowed blood and water, those people were sprinkled with blood and with water. Don't think that was an accident. That was not an accident. That was God sprinkling his people, sprinkling this world with blood and water as a sign of his covenant that he has established with us in his son. Like the children of Israel, we have been sprinkled with blood, but not the blood of bulls, but the blood of the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And by his blood, he has confirmed his covenant with us, just like he did that day with Israel at Mount Sinai. Verses 9 through 11, we see Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel go up to the to God. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. Do you understand what the implication is there? The implication is there that he deserved to lay his hand on those nobles, because those nobles were sinful. Those nobles were not righteous, they were not clean, they were not pure, they had absolutely no right to come into the very presence of God, yet God allowed them in his grace to come into his presence, to see him, to sit and eat and drink in his presence. And the Bible says, and God did not lay his hand on any one of them. 
we not only need to learn how to read what the Bible says, we need to learn how to read what the Bible is not saying. And in doing that, we're really reading what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying here that these guys were in the presence of God, not because they had a right to, but because God gave them the grace to. This is a picture of the grace that is extended to us, not for our own sake, but for Christ's sake, because it was for Moses' sake that those elders and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were allowed to come to the presence of God. It was for Moses' sake, just like we are brought into the presence of the Father for Christ's sake. We don't come on our own. We don't come because we're deserving. We come because we are with Christ. We're better than being with Christ. The Bible says we are in him and he is in us. Ephesians 5.30 says we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are members of his body. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the elders were allowed in the presence of God, not because they were worthy, but because they were with Moses. And Moses in himself was not sinless, but he was declared righteous by God. And in God's grace, Moses was allowed to come into the presence of God, the same way Noah was allowed to go into the ark. And his family went with Noah the same way these elders and these Uh, assistance of Moses went with him into the presence of God because God had declared one righteous and they were associated, they were joined to him. This is a picture of how we are righteous in Christ. We don't work to become righteous. We don't earn our righteousness. We are declared righteous because we have been joined to Christ and God in his grace makes the declaration that we are able to come before him it is the blood of Christ it is that blood of the covenant that washes us and cleanses us not our own works not our own blood and as the elders of Israel were allowed to come into the presence of Moses the presence of God for Moses sake we the church are brought into the presence of the father for Christ's sake and then in verse 12 God calls Moses up He says, come up to me. So they're already on the mountain. But God is up higher. Now I want you to notice something. There's a picture here of Moses going up to God. That's very significant. But I want you to understand that God, though he called Moses up to where he was, God understood that Moses could not come to where God ultimately was in heaven, God had to come down to a point even for Moses to go up and meet him. So in verse 12, we see God calls Moses to come up the mountain to meet him. And there God would give Moses the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments that God had written for Moses to teach the people. In Christ, God came down to us. Moses was called to come up to the mountain to meet God. In Christ, God has come down to us. Christianity is not a religion of man climbing up to reach God. Christianity is different from every other religion 
on earth in that respect. Every other religion gives laws and commandments and precepts and statutes and formulas and methods by which you have to ascend to God. You have to work your way up to God. And if you don't work hard enough, if you don't work long enough, if you don't work just right, you're not going to get to that ultimate place. So if you're Mormons and you work really hard, you may make it to heaven, but you're not going to get to the highest heaven. If you're a man and you're a Mormon, you may work really hard and make it to heaven, but you will never become a god unless you work really hard and are really righteous and do exactly what the Mormon church tells you to do and the Book of Mormon tells you to do. It's the same with every other cult, whether it's the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons. It's the same with every world religion, whether it's Islam or Buddhism. It doesn't matter. Look at any of them. It is a system by which man works his way up to God. Not Christianity. God gave the law to Israel not so Israel would have a ladder to become righteous. God gave the law of Israel as a picture, as a mirror to reveal their unrighteousness. God gave the law as a magnifying glass to magnify their sinfulness and bring them to a place of utter hopelessness so that they would not put their trust in anyone or anything else except God. Because only in God, only by his grace can we become acceptable to him. God showed us the impossibility of reaching him and out of our utter hopelessness he came to us in Jesus Christ. He is God with us. Then in verse 13 and 14 Moses go up he goes up to the mountain with Joshua and as Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God he tells the elders to wait here are his words. He says to them wait here for us until we come back to you. That should sound familiar also. That's what Abraham told his servants. When God, remember Abraham, he waited all of those years. He waited decades to have a son that God promised. And and he got so tired of waiting, he made his own plan. It was a bad plan. Finally, God comes to him and says, this time next year, you're going to have a son. Sarah laughs. But guess what? This time next year, they had a son. And then that son grows up, becomes at least an adolescent young teenage boy, he could have actually been older than that. But here's the point. This was the son of promise. This was Abraham's only begotten son. And one day, while Abraham is minding his own business, guess what God says to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather up your son. I want you to get all the stuff ready for a sacrifice. And I want you to travel until I tell you to stop. And then you're going to take your son up on the mountain that I'm going to show you, and you're going to sacrifice him to me. And you know what Abraham did? He did exactly what God told him to do. He didn't argue. He didn't kick back. He did it. 
And they traveled three days, and they come to Mount Moriah. Abraham sees the mountain. God speaks to him, says, that's the place. Abraham has his servants with him. He tells his servants, he says, me and the boy are going to the mountain to worship. We will come back. Wait here. And Abraham came back, and Isaac came back. It's a beautiful picture of Christ, the father giving his son Except that was a type and a shadow. Abraham didn't have to literally give his son, but in his heart and in his mind, he did everything but that, and God knew that he would have given his son. This is a picture of Christ, how the Father in heaven would give his son to be sacrificed for the world. So Moses goes up on the mountain with Joshua. Joshua, Yeshua. It's not an accident. He took Yeshua. Translated into English, he took Jesus with him up on the mountain. And he tells the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. And he further instructs them that Aaron and her are with you. And if any difficulty arises, they can handle it. And Moses descends, he he ascends up the mountain and he disappears into the cloud and the fire. That's the last thing the elders of Israel saw was Moses and Jesus walking into the cloud of fire. Well, Jesus also commanded his disciples to wait. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. And they were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Jesus told them they would be baptized with fire and endued with power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be witnesses to him in Judea and Jerusalem, Uh, Samaria, Judea, and all to the utter ends of the earth. So today, we are here celebrating Pentecost. And today, we are to be his witnesses. We are endued with the same powerful Holy Spirit speaking His same powerful Word with boldness and living our lives to His glory. That's who we are to be as the church. We're not to be any different than those first disciples who were up in that upper room and the Spirit of God fell on them and they came down. We're not to be any different than they are because they didn't receive a different Holy Spirit than we have received. They didn't receive a different infilling than you have received if you are in Christ right now. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I don't feel very powerful. Stop living by your feelings. Pastor Jeff, it just doesn't look like I've got very much power. doesn't look like the church has very much power. Stop walking by sight and start walking by faith. Because it's not based on what you feel. It's not based on what you see. It is based on what God has declared in his word. And he has declared and made it very clear that he has given to you the very same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The very same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. You have today in you right now that very same Spirit. And it is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is just as powerful today as it was when it hovered over the face of the deep at creation. 
And then verse 15 through 18, Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of, there's so much symbolism here. There's so many things here. It's just, you don't have time for it in one Sunday, but you should go back and read your Bible and pay attention God delineates days and weeks and numbers and he gives you those things for a reason. And it's your honor to go and search those things out and find the treasure that God has hidden within his word. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So picture this, Moses goes up with his entourage. Guess who's left down at the base of the mountain? Well, well the millions of Israelites that came out of Egypt and they know that their leader their deliverer who led them out of Egypt just three months earlier has just gone up on top of this mountain and it looks like that mountain in Hawaii right now spewing lava just, just bright with fire. And here is our leader going up that mountain. And they don't even know what's happening with the conversations. He's told the elders that were there, hey, you guys wait here, we'll be back. The children of Israel are down there looking up at the top of that mountain and all they can see is fire and smoke and this cloud. And they just know Moses went up there. Now, I didn't go back and tell you, but if you go back to Exodus 19 and you read that, when God spoke to Israel the first time, he spoke to all the nation. And when he spoke to them, it was so fearful for the people. The people said, look, Moses, God is too scary for us. You talk to him, and then you come back to us, and you tell us what he said. But we can't endure listening to the voice of God. It's too much for us. So this is their mindset. This is this scary God who lives on top of this mountain, and our leader just went up there. And he's up there for 40 days. Well, you already know what happened. It wasn't good. And even though Moses commanded them to wait for him there, the elders eventually grew impatient and they grew fearful. It, even though they had seen God and experienced the glory and the grace of God's presence, they began to doubt and give place to their own fearful, vain, and sinful imaginations. Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever find yourself in a situation in life and all of a sudden your imaginations just begin to go crazy? And that little thing... It could be a big thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. That little thing now, all of a sudden, because of your vain, fearful imaginations, you're now, you, you've blown this thing so far out of proportion that you can't get it back under control. This is what the elders of Israel did. This is what we are guilty of constantly. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses entered that cloud in that fire, and it was too much for them to endure, waiting to see if Moses would come out of that fiery cloud. They gave up faith, and they gave in to sin and to fear. Here we are, the church, the blood-bought, the redeemed. We are called to faith. We are tempted to fear. But we are called to be faithful, not fearful. 
In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is transforming us from fearful to faithful. You say, well, I haven't conquered all my fears yet, Pastor Jeff. That's okay. God is transforming you from fearful to faithful. Fear happens to all of us, but don't get stuck in your fear. Don't get deceived by your fear. Don't get entrapped by your fear and incarcerated by your fear and and, and you begin to let fear rule your life and make your decisions. Don't do that. Walk by faith. God has come down to us. We have every reason to hope We are a people that should be filled with hope. We are not a people called to try to reach up to God. God has come down to us to make a way where there is no way. God has done what no man, no angel, no demon ever imagined that he would do. God put on human flesh. He put on humanity and he came to us. Not to condemn us but to save us because we were already condemned in our sin. Jesus Christ was born into this world and he fulfilled all righteousness in human flesh. He was crucified and on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead in resurrection life and resurrection power. After his resurrection, he walked among men 40 days. Then he ascended to the Father. Contrast those 40 days that Jesus walked among men versus the 40 days that Moses was in the presence of of God. And you see that one segment of God's people responded in fearfulness. And the other segment of God's people, as Jesus walked among us for 40 days, responded in faithfulness. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, 50 days after his resurrection, God poured out his spirit on all flesh and the New Testament church was birthed. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that God has come down to fill and to indwell all flesh that is born again of the spirit. All flesh doesn't mean that God is going to put his spirit in every breathing thing on earth. I love my dogs. I love my cat. But my dogs and my cat do not have a spirit as I have a spirit. The spirit of God does not live in my dogs and my cats or my cows or the goats or the little piggies and the little chickens. No, there's only one part of creation. There's only one thing in creation that bears the image of God. It is humanity. There is only one of God's creation that is a vessel that the very spirit and presence of God dwells in. It is in man. So when the Bible says that he pours out, he will pour out his spirit on all flesh, Peter quotes the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost. All flesh means, you got to hear it the way the Jews were to hear it. All flesh doesn't mean every single human being who lives on the face of the earth and every other flesh being all flesh means that God will pour out his spirit on Jew and on Gentile. He'll pour out his spirit in rich and in poor, in male and in female. He will pour out his spirit on kings and priests and prophets, but also peasants. 
God is not a discriminator. He pours out his spirit on all flesh. And they will be filled and empowered with his spirit by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The outpouring of God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit gives us an eternal hope. Our hope in Christ is never lost. Even when we feel hopeless, we walk by faith, not by sight. Our hope transcends sight. It transcends feeling. It endures with loss and pain. It endures even in death. It is not diminished in times of lack nor in times of plenty. Our hope is steadfast. Our hope is in the God of resurrection who lives in us. He is Lord over us. He is Lord over all. God's perfect love is made manifest in Christ and his spirit that now dwells in us. His love cast away all fear. In his love, God is conforming us to the image of his son. God wants us to know right here, Right now, today, God wants us to know that we have been made complete in him by his love. There is not anything you can add to to make you complete. If Jesus has not made you complete, there is no way you can be complete. And God wants you to know that. Now in Christ, by his Holy Spirit, we have already been changed. We are being changed And his work in you will not stop until it is completed and you have been fully conformed to the image of Christ in your spirit, in your mind, and in your body. Listen to what Paul writes, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verses 17 through 18, 19, love has been perfected among us in this that we have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love cast out fear because fear involves torment but he who fears has not been made perfect in love don't miss this we love him because he first loved us God is not waiting for you to love him so he can love you when you are his enemy Opposed to him through every fiber of your being. God loved you. When you weren't looking for him, God came down for you. When you wanted to have nothing to do with him, he sought you and he saved you. You love him today because he first loved you. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Therefore, we have no reason to fear, even in the day of judgment. In Christ, we have every reason to hope. We must be reminded that our hope is steadfast, it is eternal, especially when we are tempted to fear. Christ keeps the promise that we cannot. So Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai. God gives them his word. He speaks to them and Israel responds as one man. They, they did this multiple times. You go read Exodus. They respond as one man. We will obey you, God. We will keep your word. We promise. Guess what? They failed over and over and over. But before we cast stones at Israel, realize that we all fail over and over 
and over. It's not just Israel. It's not just the Jewish people. There is no humanity that is able to keep their promise to God. There was only one who was ever able to do that. Pentecost is not about us keeping our promise to the Father. Listen, church. Pentecost is about Christ who kept his promise to the Father, walking in perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. Pentecost is about the Father who kept his promise to his Son, and so to all of us who are in Christ. Pentecost is not about you keeping your promise. Pentecost is about God who kept his promise. At Sinai, Israel promised they would keep his word and obey his commands. They did not. Christ, the true Israel of God, did what natural Israel and no man could do. Christ walked in perfect obedience, fulfilling all the righteousness of God. At Pentecost, we see God keeping his promise to send the Holy Spirit. Christ was the word made flesh that dwelt among us. Now, by the Holy Spirit, Christ is the word made flesh who dwells within us. Now we keep God's word, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We keep God's word and his commandments in Christ who dwells in us. And we dwell, we abide in him. By the spirit, Christ has become our righteousness and our salvation in God. In Christ, by the spirit, we keep God's word. God kept his promise by sending his son by sending his word and sending his spirit and keeping his promise to send his spirit, God has empowered us to keep his word eternally in Christ. How do you keep the law? You keep it in Christ. How do you keep your promise to God? You keep it in Christ. Because when you fail, when I fail, my only hope is to turn to Christ, to remember Christ who kept his word, who kept his promise, who walked faithfully and righteously before his father, who fulfilled all things so that he could redeem us by his blood, so that he could be crucified, died and buried, so that he could be raised up on the third day, ascend to heaven after 40 days, and then in 50 days pour out his spirit on all flesh, on his redeemed people. That happened 2,000 years ago on a day like today. That reality of 2,000 years ago is your reality today in Jesus Christ. The same power, the same glory, the same fire, the same presence that Moses walked into on Mount Sinai has been poured out in you. It is amazing. Praise God for his immeasurable grace that is given to us in Christ. I want to invite you to come to the table. We come and we will take that bread that is his body broken for us. We will take that cup that is the new covenant of his Established for us by his blood. The cup of his new covenant. We are not Catholic. We don't believe that bread turns into the body of Christ. We do not believe that cup turns into the blood of Christ. 
we're actually more Catholic than the Catholics. Because we welcome all who trust in Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you know that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you've been baptized into his death, not here, you don't have to be baptized here. That's why we baptize babies here. We bring babies, we raise up babies in the covenant to be believers. Well, we want our children to learn from the youngest age. We baptize them and bring them into the covenant, make them covenant members. We bring them to the table and we teach them how to eat just like you teach them how to eat at your house. Christ is here. Don't be mistaken. He's not that bread and he's not that cup. He's in you. This is what Pentecost is about. Christ is present in his church because you are his church. Because his church are the redeemed of the Lord that he has poured himself into. He has poured his love into your heart by his spirit. If you are in Christ, you are filled today with his spirit. If you are in Christ and you have been filled with his spirit, you are the body of Christ. Christ is present in his church because he is dwelling in his body. And one day, as we teach these little ones how to eat, and we teach them how to hear, and we teach them how to talk, and we teach them how to walk, one day, I don't know what day, but one day God will do a miracle just like he did in your heart and my heart. And he will cause that child to be born again. And they might not know the day they were born, but they will know they were born. Do you remember the day you were born? You have it because someone told you you were born February 27, 1961. That's my birthday. But I don't remember being born February 27, 1961. But I know I was born February 27, 1961, not because I remember being born that day. I know it because I trust my parents that that was the day. But, but in reality, I know I was born that day because here I am. And I don't remember the very moment I was born, but I came to a place in my life where I realized I'm alive. That's what God does when he causes you to be born again. And when you realize you're alive, you're going to let the world know. You're going to want to let the world know. You're going to want to confess it. You're going to want to proclaim it. You're going to want to tell everybody about it. You're not going to just hold it privately. You're going to shout it from the mountaintops and all the world will know that you are a child of God, that you have faith in Jesus. There's no demon in hell. There's no devil. There's no one. There's nothing that could stop you from making the world know and see that you are the redeemed of the Lord. That's why when you're born again and God comes to live inside of you, by your, his spirit, when he comes to live inside of you by his spirit, there is a change that must take place in your life. It doesn't happen overnight. Old habits die hard. But if you are truly born again, your life will manifest that. Your life will show that. It must show that the same way an apple tree must 
produce apples. Because if Christ is your life, then the fruit of his life, the fruit of his spirit will be seen and will be known through your life. I don't advise this. Use words to give witness to Jesus. But if you were never able to utter another word in your life, would your life communicate faith in Christ and the love of the Savior? If all we have are words but no life, it is empty. And this is why the world is skeptical of the church today. The church better get back to living and walking and manifesting the life of Christ the way God has designed it to be so. We come to this table and this is what we celebrate. That God so freely gave to us himself in his son and in his spirit. We eat the bread, we drink the cup. We celebrate the life that he has given to us. May that life be known through you. Church, come. And take the bread and take the cup and celebrate Jesus and his life. Let's stand. God has come down to us. We have no reason to fear. Here's your charge, church. Pentecost marks the day that God poured out his Holy Spirit. Pentecost marks God's coming down to us, indwelling us, filling us with his powerful presence, giving us an eternal hope with eternal life. We are not trying to get to God. We are not trying to climb to enter into his glory. Pentecost is the presence of God in all of his fire and all of his glory coming down to us. We do not ascend into the cloud of fire. The cloud of fire has descended into us. The glory of God appeared as a consuming fire to the children of Israel on the day of Pentecost, a flame of fire appeared above each disciple as a sign that the fire of God's glorious presence has come down from heaven to rest upon those the Spirit of God indwells. God has come down from heaven. God has poured out his Spirit and set his fire not on a mountaintop but in vessels of human flesh. God's glory and God's fire has come down to consume us by his Spirit. We are not straining to reach God. God has come down to us. Christ has come to us. He has poured out his Spirit. He fills us with his glory and his power to overflowing as we walk surrendered in his spirit the glory of God is a consuming fire in us and God has poured out his glory and his fire as he has poured out his spirit in our lives he pours out his spirit to fill us to consume us to purify and to empower us that we will be witnesses to Christ in all of life for all the world so let it be so for his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.